This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Our scripture reading this morning is Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 to 28. can be found on page 1006 in your pew Bibles. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all in the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established, for a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive." Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world." But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Good morning, everybody. Again. This, uh, this week marks the beginning of Holy Week. And Friday, at that Good Friday service, we'll observe uh, 
the Friday that Jesus was crucified. And we're in a series called Jesus is dot, dot, dot. And, and this week we fill in that blank with Jesus is the sacrifice, the sacrifice. He's the sacrifice to pay the price for our sins. Indeed, the sins of anyone who's in Christ, anyone who comes to him. But that'll mean nothing. That'll mean nothing to do, nothing, that'll mean nothing to you if you're good, if you're fine, if you're all right. Kind of like when a server comes to your table and starts to pour water before you ask or starts to refill your coffee before you, at, before you ask and you kind of wave him off and kind of go, I'm fine, I'm good, I'm good. The sacrifice of Jesus will be like that to you. So the question I want to ask this morning as we think about Jesus being the sacrifice is less about parsing out all the different directions that we could go through this long text and more about us answering the question, so what? Jesus is the sacrifice, so what? What does that mean? Why does that matter? Why should we care? And that question segues into the doctrine of sin that's worth mentioning at the outset. So let me be clear. I'm willing to love you by telling you the truth about yourself and the truth about the world. It isn't enough to make the argument that things are going poorly in the world. Not many people want to debate the fact that things are messed up. That's pretty obvious. It's on the surface. It's right in front of our face. What's debated is why. What's debated is what's the cause of this. It's debated in the news. It's debated in Washington. It's debated in school board meetings and even down the street at Johnson County Community College. It's debated even at screenings about the pandemic of anxiety that people are facing these days. Everyone has an opinion about what's wrong with you. And everyone has an opinion about what's wrong with the world. But God's word also has something to say to us about this and has something to say to us about this right now. And it says we're the problem. It says that sin, sin in human, human beings is the problem. It's the problem in the world and it's the problem with us. Sin is the corruption. It's the tainting. It's the contamination of everything. Everything. Your mind's corrupted. Your affections are disordered. Your heart is ingrown and selfish. Your desires are idolatrous. It's like an infection in your blood. It's all over. You can't get away from it. You can't escape it. And the Bible says that we're completely infected with evil desires. The Bible doesn't mince words. It's not loving for me to mince words either. God loves you way more than I ever could, and he doesn't mince words. He tells us, he tells us straightforwardly, because hard words make soft hearts, the Puritans used to say. If we want our hard hearts to be broken, soft words won't do the trick They're not the right tool. You can't break up the concrete with a feather duster. 
try all you want, if we want soft hearts, if we want tender hearts, then we have to be humble enough to receive words that fall like a hammer on stone. Romans 3 is that kind of jackhammer for the human heart. It says, quoting the Old Testament, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That sounds worse to me than a rehabilitation crisis. It sounds worse to me than not enough or not good enough public education. That sounds pretty bad. So bad, in fact, that someone has to die for that situation to get hopeful at all. At all. The truth is that I am and I want us to be with Peter in the boat when he looks at Jesus and says, Get away from me. I'm a sinful man. I want us to be with Isaiah in the throne room of God saying, I shouldn't be speaking. I'm a man of unclean lips. I don't belong in this room before a holy God. I want us to be with the younger brother in the prodigal son story who finally says, just let me be a servant. I know I've wasted and squandered my status as a son. If you've ever felt the sheer volume and weight of your own sin, That's the kind of gentle, loving hand of the Father helping you come home. We're full of sin. I'm full of sin. You're full of sin. My remaining indwelling corruption is what the Bible calls my flesh, and it is bad. It's so bad that the Son of God had to die. And I want to start there. I want to remind you of your baptism Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice that changes everything, that cleans you up because you could never clean yourself up, that purifies you because you're contaminated and you cannot purify yourself, that washes you because you and I are dirty and grimy and covered in gunk without the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you today, the hope of the gospel... The hope of the gospel is brighter than their despair is dark. But the bad news has to come first so that we know what the good news really means and why it's really, really good. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Blood had to be shed as a sacrifice for you and for me. And Jesus Christ is that sacrifice. Would you all join me as I invite the Holy Spirit and pray? for the rest of this morning. Spirit of God, I ask you to come. You're always here, but we ask you to manifest your presence here, and we ask you to do it in a couple different ways. One, would you convict us of sin? Two, Holy Spirit, would you glorify Christ in this room? Would you glorify Christ in our hearts? Would you glorify Christ in our midst? I ask that you would convict us of unrighteousness so that we can be free. 
so we can experience forgiveness and washing and cleansing. Spirit of God, would you increase our affection for Christ? Would you increase our devotion to Christ? Would you increase our obedience to Christ? Would you transform us from the inside out this morning, I ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Jesus is the sacrifice. He's the sacrifice for sin, and his sacrifice is the only way to be saved. And today I'm going to ask three overly simple questions. The dynamics of needing a sacrifice at all is what I want us to be concerned with. But if you're pretty sure that you're pretty awesome and that you just being here is doing God a favor, then the sacrifice of Jesus will be nonsense to you. It'll be fairy tale nonsense and mythology. All this sacrifice talk will be silly. However, however, if you know, if you know your inner corruption and sin, if you know, then his sacrifice fits logically in a chain that means something deeply for you, that hits you in the deepest places of your soul. So I'm going to ask, what is a sacrifice? The overall kind of concept of sacrifice. What, what, why are we using that word today? And then why do we need one? And then why is Jesus the perfect sacrifice? So point one, what are we talking about? Let me reread verses 11 to 15 again for us. It says, But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls, the sprinkling of a defiled person with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification, for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred, that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The sacrifice to cover sin has a long history in the Bible, longer than the ceremonial law that we'll visit in a second. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the first human beings rebel and reject God's instruction. In Genesis 3, a crafty serpent enters the narrative and says, Did God really say... And that question generates doubt and gives birth to sin, which gives birth to death. And that's always how sin works. It always births death. Once it matures, once it grows. And in the storyline of Adam and Eve, they're naked and unashamed. But then once they've sinned, they are naked and full of shame. Full of shame, and they grab leaves to cover their shame and their nakedness as best as they can. And so do we. 
So do we. We cover our shame with our own strategies, our own ideas. But the things that we gather up to cover our shame aren't sufficient. The fig leaves that we hold up die. They decompose. They disintegrate. And we're left just as naked and ashamed as when we started. But God comes in with mercy and compassion. And he kills an innocent lamb to make clothes for Adam and Eve to make a garment, to make a covering out of a bloody death to put over them. And that is what he does for us, to cover their shame, cover their sinful nakedness. This lamb was sacrificed for their sin and their shame. It didn't do anything wrong. Adam and Eve are the ones who did something wrong. And in Adam, all of us walk out our lives full of sin because of that full of shame because of how shame entered the world in the beginning. Then later in the story of God, in the story, God sets his love onto a certain people. He chooses and associates and identifies himself with the Israelite people, and he delivers them from slavery in Egypt. And he does this by sending plagues on the Egyptian people to devastate them and to cause Pharaoh to let his people go. And the final plague was called the the Passover, and it was when the angel of the Lord went through the land and killed all the firstborn sons in Egypt and all the people, unless unless they had blood on the sides of their door and over their doorposts, unless there was blood covering their house, they weren't protected. And after this, after this, the people are cast out of Egypt and then begins their long story in the wilderness. And this is where God institutes ceremonial laws and ceremonial procedures. There, there were different kind of physical realities that were off limits to the people of God. Things that they could do or even things that could be done to them or happen to them or stuff that they could touch that would defile them and make them unclean, unfit to live amongst the people of a holy God. And there were instructions about what to do and how to do it to purify yourself once these kinds of things happened. Things like touching a dead body or touching a diseased skin or an animal carcass. If you touched these things, you were considered ceremonially unclean and you couldn't participate in the life of the community until you took the necessary steps to purify yourself. And routinely, animal sacrifices were performed in order to pay the cost of the people's sins. This is how they lived and this is how they operated with sin and purification for sin as natural and normal categories in their everyday life. But this didn't change the human heart. They were idolatrous They were wicked, unforgiving, faithless at times. You see, this blood that was spilled in the old covenant isn't enough. It was never enough. And the book of Hebrews exists to help us understand that. The author tells us plainly in chapter 10 that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So then, we should ask, What's happening in the history of this covenant people and how does that matter for us today? Even in the text we read, we could look at all the sacrifices in the Old Testament, but even that didn't clean a guilty conscience. The story of God's people is full of promises, promises of a covenant that can 
can clear a guilty conscience. A new covenant will be established that functions differently. And God is not only the promiser of this covenant, but he's also going to be the facilitator of it. One famous section that talks about this is in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a covenant, a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive them their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. One pastor summarizes the situation described in our text today this way. He says, and I quote, In the old period of history, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year, taking the blood of animals. Why did he have to do that? Because the blood stood for the death of an animal and the death was in the place of the death of of the priest and of the people. God counted the blood of the animal as a sufficient offering for cleansing the flesh, the ceremonial uncleanness. But what about the guilty conscience of the priest and of the people? No animal could cleanse that. And they knew it. And we know it. So in the time of Reformation, a new high priest comes, Jesus, the Son of God, with a better sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself. That gets us to an understanding of what the Bible's explaining or what it's saying in Hebrews when it's talking about Jesus as the sacrifice, the central sacrifice, the sacrifice that changes everything. And I want us to ask today, maybe afresh or maybe for the first time, why do I need a sacrifice? Why do we need a sacrifice? That's the second point that I want to talk about today. Why do we need a sacrifice? Well, we're guilty. We are guilty before a pure and holy God. That's the piece that, that's the piece that's the hinge That's the hinge on which all the value of this text is derived for us today. For us to understand why Jesus is the sacrifice, why that matters for us in 2023, we have to know that we are guilty before a holy God. If you don't believe that you're a guilty sinner, then the death of Christ won't make any sense. It'll be fairy tale nonsense unless you've come to grips with your sin, unless you've been able to be honest with yourself and admit that you are a sinful person. You're not a sinner so much because you sin as you sin because you're a sinner. It's in our very nature. In short, I'm here today to love you enough to tell you that you need someone to die for your sins. You stand apart from Christ, condemned by a holy God. 
And if you think that he doesn't have the right to do that, that's actually part of the condemnation. I tend to, I tend to raise my voice at different times when I, I preach, but this reality needs no volume. I'm a sinner. We're sinners and we know it. I pray that you understand that because if you do, the blood of Jesus will be precious to you. It will be seen as unimaginably gracious and merciful and kind. And in dealing with the second point, I want to talk about why it matters that Jesus is your sacrifice. I want to talk about that for the believer in this room. And I want to address it for the unbeliever in this room. For the believers in this room, I want you to be encouraged. I want you to become familiar with your sin. And I want you to be free from self-obsession. Number one, be encouraged this morning. For the believer, we should take heart and be encouraged this morning because Jesus Christ is the final sacrifice for our sin. In the Old Testament, the priest took the blood of bulls and goats and mediated the sacrifice for the people. But today, Christ is the mediator and he's the blood. Christ is the sacrifice and the priest that mediates a better covenant. Christ paid for your sin, and that means you are clean. You're washed. You're cleansed from the inside out. Though your sins be red like scarlet, you'll be washed and whiter than snow. If you're a Christian this morning, no one can condemn you. No one. It is Christ who justifies, who is to condemn. The answer is nobody. Nobody. Nobody can ultimately condemn you. You're clean, washed by the blood of the Lamb. Romans 8 tells us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your accuser's been defeated. The guilt that you incurred has been completely paid for. And now God looks at you as pure. Holy, righteous, sanctified. You're not an employee. You are a daughter. You are a son of the living God. Adopted, cleansed, justified. And your sanctification is secure. You don't have to pay penance. You don't have to abuse yourself. You don't have to punish yourself anymore. Christ's sacrifice, his death is enough. Stop beating yourself up and let the burdens fall off your shoulder. Number two, let me exhort the Christians in this room to do something a little bit counterintuitive this morning. Become, become aware and familiar with your sin. Be honest about it. The way you remove burdens is to acknowledge them and own them and see the blood of Jesus wash them away. You don't have to lie to yourself. You don't have to lie to your family. You can confess and you can own your sin. One counselor says what we don't own tends to end up owning us. What you don't confess will change you. For the worse. Sin's never asleep. It isn't dormant. It's working like yeast to seep into every relationship of your life unless you own it, confess it, repent, kill it, wash and repeat. 
One thing about confessing and repenting of sin is that you'll have to let other people in your life point out your sin to you. You have to let it be named for you by people who love you. But those same people will also have their own sin. That makes it hard. They'll also have their own junk. People who are also sinful. You have to let them say to you, hey, you got to change this or it's going to end up changing you. And they'll be sinners. And when they point something out in your life, it will offend your pride. And that sting, the sting you feel when people point out your sin is your pride. And that sting you feel is the kindness of God so that you can identify your pride. And then you can work to repent and kill that too. Pride works to defend our sin. Pride works to protect our sinful strategies. It, it works to kind of shield us and keep us defensive. Pride's the real enemy. And I'm saying today, get familiar with it. Why? So that you can love much. So that you can love much. Jesus says, he who's been forgiven much loves much. And I find that to be a very interesting phrase because the facts are plain. All of us have been forgiven much. All of us. So what's the deal? Because not all of us would say that we love much. And it's the people who know. Who know. I mean deep in their heart of hearts. The people who know they've been forgiven a lot. That love the deepest. When I was growing up. When I was growing up, there was a man in the church I grew up in, and I'll call him Bill. I don't think I know any Bills in this church. I'll call his name Bill. He was funny and simple, and he worked as the custodian for the school and church that I grew up in. And that man, that man would stand in front of the room with his eyes closed and his arms out and his face towards heaven. And he would worship and worship and worship and tears would just stream down his face every Sunday. And we didn't worship for 15 minutes like we do here. I grew up in a charismatic setting. We did like a whole hour. And he would stand up there and just worship just like that. And one day, I got to hear that man's story. He grew up, he grew up in, the, in the hate Ashbury neighborhood of San Francisco in the 60s. So that was like the epicenter of the countercultural movement of the 1960s. He was like two doors down from the Grateful Dead, which I thought was cool. And one day, a few of his older friends grabbed him and they went to score some weed from their dope dealer. Only this guy was out of weed at this time. And so he gave each of them a shot of heroin. And this friend of mine was 13 years old. And that sent him down a trajectory of decades Decades of destruction and addiction and pain. And then, and then Jesus found this man. 
And Jesus took this life of destruction and addiction and pain, and he, he grabbed a hold of it, and he said, mine. And he washed him. And this guy would just worship and cry and sing and cry and talk to God and cry. And it's because he knew. He knew that he had been forgiven so much. That he loved so much. So the invitation today, the invitation today there is just like, hey, be okay with being embarrassed with your sin so that you can confess it and bring it to the light and be free from it, experience the redemption and the forgiveness of Jesus so that you can love much, so that you get to experience the freedom and the joy of loving much. Let me love you enough to tell you that you're not hiding your sin or your shame as, as well as you think you are. Let me encourage you to put down the mask and quit pretending like you've got it all together. It takes so much energy to pretend like everything's okay. It's exhausting to be self-righteous. It's exhausting to be judgmental. It's exhausting being arrogant or envious or jealous or angry. It's miserable. So quit. Quit. Admit and confess it. See it for all of its ugliness. Don't minimize it. See it for what it is so you can experience the forgiveness of, of the depth, the depth of how sinful it is. Be forgiven much so that you can enjoy loving much. Number three, be free from self-obsession. The sacrifice of Jesus means you don't have to be consumed with your guilt. You don't have to be consumed with, uh, with every time you feel stupid for drawing outside the lines. You don't have to be obsessed with all of your own failures. The way to experience the freedom of the gospel is to stop making everything about you. The freedom of the gospel is applied, applied and experienced by becoming obsessed with Jesus instead. Looking at him, loving him, delighting in him. You couldn't save yourself and you can't sanctify yourself. Jesus didn't save you. Jesus didn't save me and say, all right, Mark, I brought you this far. You take it from here. That's not what he did. It was grace. It is grace. It will be grace in the power of his Holy Spirit. I don't have to obsess about all the mistakes I'm making. I can own them and cut them off and be free from them. Self-obsession will give you ulcers. Being self-absorbed will spin you up with anxiety. But if you become Christ-absorbed, absorbed, the world gets right-sized. Psalm 118.6 says, The Lord's on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The answer is lots of stuff. Right? We know that every day. The answer is, what's this guy talking about? Man does stuff to me all the time, and I'm terrified by it. He can shame me. 
He can malign your character. He can lie about you to your friends. He can post things about you on Facebook for the whole world to see. And in addition to that, he can kill you. He can kill you. But what really can he do to me? Nothing. Nothing. Because every pain, every struggle, every trial is God building your character brick by brick by brick. For the Christian, you can't lose because even when you lose, you don't lose. You don't lose. God promised he'll make everything, everything beautiful in your life and everything ugly in your life work for your good. Obsess about Jesus, the one through whom that redemption comes. Get your eyes off of yourself and fix them on Jesus. And then a second, I also want to address for the unbeliever in this room, I'm going to appeal to you the same way. Confess your sin. Look to Jesus. Be, be cleansed and be freed from your bondage to sin. There's a God and he sees all the corners and crevices and cracks in your life and in my life. He knows the secrets in your life that you would never tell a soul. He knows the daydreams that you have that you would never admit to anyone. He knows and he even sees stuff you don't know about yourself that's even darker. He knows stuff about you that you might never know about yourself. You can't hide anything from him. And he says, if you knew who he was, you would ask him for living water because the truth is is that you're dying of thirst. He says, come to me, all those who are weary, all those who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Come to Jesus, own your sin and be cleansed by his blood and leave a free man or a free woman in Christ this morning. Lastly, what makes Jesus, what makes Jesus the perfect sacrifice? Verse 12 says, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. In the old system, the goats or calves that were sacrificed had to be spotless. They had to be without blemish or wrinkle. And that was to point to the fact that Jesus would be sinless, perfect. He's the perfect sacrifice because only he who knew no sin could become sin for you and for me. He's the perfect sacrifice because he's the final sacrifice. Never again will a sacrifice for sin be needed. He's enough for any and all sin forever, forever, for anyone who comes to him. He suffered the consequences of your sin. He suffered the reproach that my sin deserves. He suffered the torture and derision and betrayal that he never deserved. 
That's why he's the perfect sacrifice. He was silent. There was no deceit in his mouth. That's why he's the perfect sacrifice. He's compassionate and he sympathizes with our weakness. He said, let the little ones come to me. He doesn't break a bruised reed. He doesn't quench a smoldering wick. He obeyed all the way to the point of death, maintaining his sinlessness all the way to the end so that his sacrifice could take away the sins of many could take away your sin once and for all. The second half of verse 26 reads this way. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The sacrifice of Christ puts away sin. Not only your sin and my sin, but the last enemy, death, the proof that sin reigns in this life, has been defeated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we'll celebrate next week. His sacrifice makes a clear conscience possible. His sacrifice does what no other sacrifice can do. Application this morning is worship him. Love him. Look to him, adore him, orient your life to see him glorified. In chapter 13 of Hebrews, the author explains that the animal remains, once the sacrifice happened, what was left over. Those animal remains from the old covenant blood sacrifices were burned outside the camp. And the writer of Hebrews proceeds to explain to us that just like those carcasses were discarded and burned outside the camp, so too Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Jesus was perfect and sinless, and yet he was abandoned and beaten and treated like these burned sacrifices. And the author's conclusion is, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here, friends, we have no lasting city but we seek the city that is to come. Jesus' sacrifice isn't a dry, stale fact for Pharisees. It is a gift for prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners. And he's not ashamed to be seen with us. So let's not be ashamed to be seen with him. He became sin for our sake, and now will we be counted with him. Let's go outside the camp where Jesus is. Let's take up our cross and follow him. The world may hate us, but take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. Our heart and our flesh may fail, but he's the strength of our heart and our portion forever. What good is it if we get the whole world and lose our souls? The ceremonial and sacrificial systems were a shadow. They were a shadow of things to come. But the substance, the substance belongs to Christ. He is the mediator. He's the sacrifice. He's the mediator of a better covenant. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread and he broke it after he had given thanks. And then he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant, not in that old blood. This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's why we have communion at the end of every service. The way we take communion here at Redeemer Fellowship is we we break a piece of bread off and we dip it into a cup. The stoneware cups are wine and the glassware is juice. We'll have two stations down in front of the podium and we'll have one station in the balcony. We'll have a station over to the left here that is gluten-free and single serve. And we'll also have prayer ministers underneath this window over here to my left that would love to pray for anybody in this room for anything, anytime. They're here every single Sunday. We end with communion to proclaim his death until he comes to the watching world and to one another. That's why we serve communion to each other. We look into each other's eyes and we say, Christ's body broken for you. Take and eat. The blood of Christ shed for your life. Drink. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us and thank God for his, or thank Jesus for his blood and his broken body and the servers and the musicians are going to come back up. I invite you to reflect, listen to the Holy Spirit and come forward and eat whenever you're ready. Communion in at Redeemer is welcome to anybody who puts all of their faith and hope and trust in Jesus for his righteousness. People who know that they're sinners and, and know that they need his blood to cleanse them. If you're not a Christian in this room, we invite you to pray. We have prayer guides in the pews in front of you. We invite you to sit in your seat and not take this meal. Not because we're trying to withhold anything from you, but we really want you to meet Jesus more than, more than uh, eat this bread and wine with us. So I'm, I'm going to pray for us and the servers are going to come forward. Would you all pray with me? Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your blood that was shed. Thank you for your body that was broken. Holy Spirit, we invite you. We invite you to convict us of sin. We invite you to reveal to us places that we're hiding or being defensive or we're bristling at your direction and leading. We invite you to expose those things in our hearts. It is hard for us to let go of those things. We clutch on to them. So would you give us the grace we need to do it? Would you give us the grace that we need to own the sin in our lives and confess it to a brother or a sister and be healed. Be healed. Confess. Repent. Experience. Experience the forgiveness of Jesus. The forgiveness that's only made possible through the sacrifice of Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you move on these people right now? Would you move on my heart right now? Would you sink these realities a little bit deeper? Help us believe them a little bit more. Strengthen our faith as we come to the front and eat in faith. 
And I ask all of that in the name of Jesus. Amen.